finish this book, but I'm giving you a disclaimer right now. You will never be more challenged in your Christian walk than you will be today, so I'm going to give you the excuse you could walk out if you don't want to hear it. I'm serious. I mean, uh, sure, I've been challenged when I've been being stupid and God convicts me of something stupid, but you and I are going to be challenged, I believe, like no other. Or maybe it was just a Bible study for me, so let's stand and let's turn to 1 John chapter 5 as we seek to bring this thing to a close. You know, we were at 14 and 15 last week about asking. We're going to pick that up because that's the context today. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything, and I hope that our asking went through the ceiling this last week and continues, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will not gossip, he will say it, ask. And, 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 and he, and Jesus will give him life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. I do not say, or there is sin leading to death, I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, there's a problem with this verse here, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, and we know that the Son of God has come. We know that we know that we know, because we see it, that he's come and has given us an understanding. You can't learn it. That we may experientially know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And this is the challenge for each one of us that have idols. And we all have at least one, if not multiple. Little children, keep yourself from idols. So be it. Make it happen. Amen. And Father, this morning, as we turn our hearts to your word, oh God, we need you to speak to us. In these last days of where the church will be loving themselves and loving their money and just doing their own thing and calling the shots of their lives and Somehow thinking that they're rich, well off, and in need of nothing, yet the reality is we're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Oh God, help us to have ears to hear what your Spirit wants to speak to us this morning. That we would literally walk out of here and seek to live like the early church lived. Like the latter church lived. Please. May your word find good soil in each one of our hearts, that fruit might be produced and born out of our lives, that others would partake of it. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The title of my message this morning is, Are You Ready to Make a Difference? Verse 16 is where we start. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, that's where we're going to start this morning. So what is this? Well, I, I, I can go on and tell you all if you want, because there's a lot of things that I do that miss the mark of God's perfection, because that's what sin means, missing the mark. It was the exact dead center, and if the arrow didn't hit the exact dead center, it was sin. It has to hit the exact dead center. And so I could go on and tell you all the things where I missed the mark. But that's not the only way I can sin. It's not the only way you can sin. We also can sin by not obeying God's word. That's missing the mark as well. For proof of that, James chapter 4, verse 17. To him who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is. Oh, see, so you know that. So missing the mark comes in two flavors today. Things that violate God's righteousness and not doing what God is calling you and me to be about doing. Now, 
if you are in denial, you're in trouble. <laughs> but if you're not in denial, then you're the same as me. We're just all sinners saved by grace. We're not perfect. No one is, including the Pope. He's a man. He is born of a man and a woman. He's a sinner. I'm sorry if that upsets you, but it's, it's true. The Greek word for sinning, hamartano, and the Greek word for sin, hamartia, in this passage, they both mean the exact same thing. Sinning, though, is a verb, meaning those things that you and I do in the action of sinning, and sin is a noun. It's the actual thing I do. You know, a noun is a person, place, or a, a thing. So it's the things we do, and when we do that thing, we are you guys are sharp. Hey, let me read this as I add in the Greek tenses and the definitions to kind of, to really bring this into focus. You might want to make a couple notes in your Bible. If anyone presently perceives with the eye his brother, which includes its pastor, missing the bullseye of God's perfection, a missing the bullseye, which does not lead to, I believe, physical death, because we're talking about believers here, he will ask our Lord, just like we saw last week. He will ask our Jesus. Because you ask, Jesus will, future tense, give the person life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. Can someone say, please pray for me? I mean, I, that's what the passage says. Any, any perfect people here? Let the record show, oh, just the wise guy up there in the yellow shirt. <laughs> yeah, the long hair one. <laughs> so, so all of us have lots of things that, you know, you, there you were someone, you go, whoa. No, pray for them. Because you have two choices. You will judge them or you'll pray for them. God's word is calling you and I, the church, to be askers. For our fellow brothers and sisters. And that is asking our Lord, not telling your sister or brother, hey, did you see that? This is asking our Lord, Lord, please forgive them, or please, Lord, overlook, or Lord, please empower their life, or Lord, give them life today and future life tomorrow. That's what the passage says. This is not, did you see what so-and-so did? Please. That is so childish. There is no place for that in the church. But it's rampant in the church, it seems. We are commanded by God's word, and we are commanded by the God who lives in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, to love. Not to tear down. As we really, I believe, draw a line in the sand. God says, love, and by doing so, pray for your brother when you see him sinning to sin, not leading to death. Or judge gossip. If you see a brother sinning, don't write him off. Pray for him. Maybe they've given into their flesh, or maybe they've been pulled by the world, or they're deceived by the devil. Pray for him. Nobody's perfect. None of us are. Now, let me just say this. This is not living a lifestyle of sin. No, we saw that back in chapter 3. That's a whole other issue. This is, I miss a mark here, I miss a mark there, here a mark, there a mark, everywhere. Yeah, see. <laughs> we all do them. <gasps> oh, you almost got angry. You're sinning. You just, and, and, and this is what happens, I think, as we grow older with the Lord. We don't act on it, but we still act on it in our heart and we catch it. But it doesn't matter. Jesus said if you do it in the heart or do it outwardly, they're both the same. We can pray for one another. Is it not possible that God is showing you something in my life for the sole purpose of you praying for me that I might become a better man of God? And the answer is yes. That's why. And so when you pray rather than judge, you are showing love to the other person and there is no doubt in my mind that God honors that and blesses you, the person who prays. Otherwise, why did God put this in his word here? Filler page? I don't think so. There's something that obviously happens in your life when you pray for another person instead of judge them. What? I don't know. But I do know this. 
In James chapter 1, he writes this, all those who are doers of the work of God, this one will be blessed in what he does. Is God calling us to pray for the brother that sins but not a sin leading to death? Okay, so as I do that, I'm a doer of the word of God. And I'm going to be blessed. And for what? For praying for my brother when he sins. Collectively, all of us praying for other believers when you see him sin. Could you imagine what the church would look like, how it would impact the world if the church across the world started praying for one another instead of judging one another? Now, we should judge those living continually in sin. The Bible calls that. But I'm talking about the little things. The things, you, you didn't get up and plan on doing it. However, there is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. What is this? Well, I don't think it's complicated if we keep it in the context with the rest of this passage. So for starters, we're talking about believers here. We're not talking about an unsaved person. Brothers and sisters on this side of that verse, brothers and sisters on this side. And since that's the context, then death here must be physical death and not spiritual death. There is sin leading to death. If you're confused about that, go ask Ananias, Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, what that might look like. You know the story? They're misrepresenting God before the people in the early church. They're playing the hypocrite. Boom! Ananias falls over dead. His wife, Sapphira, walks in three hours later. Hey, did you really sell the land for this much? Yep, for that much. Boom! She falls dead. Says, great fear fell upon everyone. Yeah, no doubt it did. Now, I believe they're in heaven. Certainly, you don't do one selfish act. It's like, oh, you're going to hell. <laughs> if that's the case, are we in trouble? We are all in trouble. So I believe that's what it is. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say you should pray about it. I think that was it. God was going to judge them. Another place for you and I to look, and we planned this out perfectly. We were going to be here on a communion Sunday. We laid this all out years in advance. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Please, let's turn there. We'll come right back. In, 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 in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is addressing issues in, in this church that had so many. And this is where God's word is giving brothers and sisters instructions surrounding the heart of breaking the bread in communion. And the reason God does this is because the men and women in the church, as they were partaking of the bread and the juice, they were doing it in an unworthy, extremely divisive manner. When they'd gather together, Paul says, you get together and it's, it's for bad, it's not for good. So their hearts were wrong, just like Ananias and his wife Sapphira's heart. And you can come back and you need to read this whole chapter. But we, we kind of enter into this dialogue after Paul's explained what communion is. And we're going to pick it up. And I believe this is concerning a sin leading to death in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord. We're talking about believers here. Certainly non-believers don't do this. Whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, which causes us to ask, what reason? Gossip, divisive words, any sin, or while living in sin. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. That's death. You, you all own a Bible. You all have the Holy Ghost in you. Search this out. It sure seems that God has the option of bringing a brother or sister that's sinning home if he chooses to. Certainly not every untimely death is God's doing. But you can be a Berean here. You can check it out. And you can search this out. But I believe this is what it is. Someone that's leading a sin, that's, that's sinning, leading to death. Back to 1 John chapter 5. And as we see that in the verse 16 here, this is for all who make up the bride of Christ around the world. 
And if I'm playing around in a hidden sinful lifestyle, not just sin here and there, you know, because of my own flesh, but I'm living a lifestyle of sin. I need some fear of God in me. Something has to settle in my heart. If I'm calling myself a believer and I am living a, a lifestyle of sin, and I can give you the three big ones, sexual immorality, a, a drug addict, or a drunkard. Those are the big ones, at least in the life of the church. If I'm living that, man, I need some fear of God in me. I am living on borrowed time. Verse 17, round two, in case you missed it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. And, and if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you say, yeah, amen on that. I see that. Because the longer you're a Christian, well, like I said earlier, the more you get to see and recognize what God is saying is wrong in your life. But here's my encouragement to each one of us. We've got to continue to call sin, sin. Because in our world today, everybody's a victim. Everyone. It's invaded the church. It's discouraging the church. Or they make excuses. But see, an excuse maker will never change ever because they always have an excuse for what they do. We've got to continue to call sin what it is. It's sin. We don't want to change it to something that it's not. Verse 18, we know, and this is, we know that we know because of God's word and his spirit in us that whoever is born of God does not live in or practice sin. I mean, how, how can I? When that part of me is dead, when Jesus moved in, Paul writes in Romans 6, Romans 6, for he who has died has been freed from sin. You know, we were in a cemetery last week, went to my son's gravesite, and uh, there wasn't anybody there sinning in those graves. They were dead. When Christ moves in, we're crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. No, that part is, has no power over me anymore. Christ moves in. I'm now powered by the living God. We're still going to sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We saw that in chapter 1 of this book. But that which you used to do or get away with, that lifestyle now, it bothers you. That which used to be your habit of doing before Christ, you look at that and go, man, that's ugly. You hate it. When your mind starts trying to pull you there, it's like, no way, I know what that is. It's death. When your flesh starts heading there, you go, no way, that's miserable. And you're conscious about it. Before you came to Christ, were you really... Maybe you were. I wasn't. I wasn't conscious of my sin. I just did whatever I wanted to do. But now there's a pleading with Jesus to work in your life that you, you, you don't do those things. But I will tell you, I, I'm very concerned about the person that tells me that they're a Christian living in sin or sinning in some way that is their lifestyle and they are not concerned by their actions. We've got to watch out. We've got to be careful. It could be that such a person is not born again, but they're a tear growing up in the life of the church because Jesus said the tares and the wheat are going to grow up in the church and at the harvest time, God will separate them out. So certainly, and that's why it's so important for you and I not to look over there, down the hallway or the aisleway and go, well, I'm better than those. Yeah, but they may not, may not even be saved. We've got to look up. The apostle Paul says, imitate me because I'm imitating Jesus. That's what God says. So we got to be careful here. We know that whoever is born of God does not live in or practice sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself. Really? <laughs> you keep yourself? I don't. God does. That's why the, most commentators believe there's a translation here in, here in verse 18. The he should be capitalized to mean Jesus and himself should be turned into him. So let me read verse 18. It should read like this. We know absolutely that everyone who has been born of God and as a result of is a regenerated individual does not keep on habitually sinning. But he, who has been, but he that's Jesus, who has been born of God, maintains, that's us. We've been born of God we maintain, he, and God maintains a watchful guardianship over him. That's us. And the wicked one does not lay hold of him. That's you and me. 
The wicked one does not touch him. This is all promised to a believer team. So don't listen to the nonsense out there that, well, hey, if you're in these sins, you need to come and we need to cast these demons out of you or you're a Christian and you could be demon-possessed. That's ridiculous. Nowhere in the scriptures is God into time-sharing with the devil. When Christ moves in, whatever evil was in you, if it was in there, it has to move out. Because we're not possessed by, Christ, by demons. When Jesus said, are you going to serve me of those drugs in your car? And when I turned to him and I said, yes, I'm serving you and threw those drugs over, those demons came out of me. And they can't get back in. Why? Because Christ is in me just like he's in you. It's critical. We understand this. When a person comes to Christ and the light comes on, the darkness flees. When you and I are serving Jesus, Jesus is the one that keeps us. And he protects us from the wicked one. We find that consistent throughout the scriptures. Greater is he who is in me than anything that's in this world. You know, the devil may... I don't know, you wake up, it's like, Lord, I'm just going through my life all by myself and, and you're not clothed in the armor of God and the, G, and the devil goes, oh, or his demons go, wow, look, that, there's a believer there. They're just going through life. It's all about them. Yeah, you may get hit with a couple arrows or God may allow the demons to inflict you like he did Job. I don't know. But in regards to your eternal soul or demon possession or generational curses or any of that other junk, no way. You and I, we are blood-bought, sealed in Christ as you and I abide in Him. Amen? Amen. We are. We got to all agree here on that. We're not blood-bought, sealed in Christ, and the demons roll in and out of our lives as we abide in Jesus. No way. The Bible doesn't teach that. Verse 19, we know, and again, this is, we observe with our eyes that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We got to understand this, team. We got to understand, you know, those unsafe friends you have, your family members, neighbors? They lie under the sway of the evil one. That is why it's so critical for the church to pray. See, a prayerless church is a powerless church. And if you want to see those people come to faith in Christ, you got to pray. Why? Because the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. There's two words in the Greek language in the Bible for wicked. One is just plain old wicked. They're mean, they kick the dog, they punch you out if you get in their way. The other wicked, this one here in verse 19, is, poro, is, is poneros. And it's this wicked or evil that is not content unless it's sucking others into destruction with it. It's an evil that's not content unless it's infecting others and damning them. That's, what, that's why our world is so messed up. But the world is messed up because the church has quit pe preaching the gospel. And so this world lies under the influence of the wicked one team, a wicked scheme of the devil that's seeking to rule over all. And he's not going to be content until he's infected some and damned others. That's the devil's plan. We know we are of God, but this whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. That's why we have got to pray for the lost. So important. We've got to ask Jesus to work. You know, oh man, my poor uncle Barney, you know, I wish he'd get saved. Don't, don't, don't just tell God stuff. Ask God. God, save him. Rip the scales off his eyes. Put Christians around them. I believe every time I pray, God, would you put believers around my family? God does it. Every time I pray, God, will you cause them to think about Jesus right now? I believe he does it. Now, I never know that until, like I said last week, nine years later, my brother tells me, oh, hey, by the way, I've been working at Calvary Chapel, Spokane for the last nine years. I never knew that. And yet God had put people around him. And as we pray, that veil that somehow the devil blinds people with, it's removed so that they're able to hear the truth and that they're able to see the truth and that they're able to respond and see Jesus as you and I are. And we know, again, this is, we know as we observe with our eyes, verse 20, 
that the Son of God has come and has given us, check this out, don't miss this, an understanding. This understanding that Jesus gives you and I, you can't go to school and learn this one. That's why Paul prays in, in uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. He, say, he prays for them that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. See, Jesus brings that into our lives. It's not something you can go and learn. He's brought this understanding to your heart, church, that each one of us may, different Greek word here for no, it's gnosko, that we may, gnosko, that we may experientially know him. That's what gnosko means, to experience, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus has given us an understanding that we may personally know the creator of the universe who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. Watch this. This is the true God in eternal life. Please don't miss this. Who's the true God in eternal life? What's it say? It's right there. Yeah, God's son, Jesus Christ. Now, I understand the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses have an issue with that. Yeah, that's because they got the wrong Jesus. We don't. Jesus is the true God, and Jesus is eternal life. And he's given us this understanding that we might have this awesome, intimate, living, real relationship with him. And who's him? He's the creator of the universe, the one who created everything and the one who controls everything. God never makes mistakes. God never learns anything new. And I trust that you and I as believers that we've experienced his continual love and forgiveness. That you hear his voice. Jesus said, deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Well, how can I follow him if I can't see him or hear him? Why would he ask me to do that if that wasn't possible? Oh no, it is possible. But you got to get yourself out of the way. And you got to be submitted to God's word, picking up that cross. Not my will, Jesus prayed in the garden three times, but your will. He was submitted to his Father's will. Do you personally know and continue to live for this one named Jesus? I hope so. If you have, stay on fire, stay the course. This is where you need to be found. Make a difference in your life. Use what God has given you for his kingdom. Inventory your life. Look and see who or what you're living for. See, I can say, I'm living for Jesus right now, brother. No, I, but, for, but look, if we're honest, I have to look back last week and last month and last year, not to condemn me, but to wake me up. Because what I did last week, last month, last year, that's who I'm living for. Where do, you, where do I invest my time and my resources? I have to ask myself. That's why this was so challenging to me. And you know, brothers and sisters, you've got to ask the same thing. Where are you investing your time and resources? None of us want to be deceived here. And as I was thinking on this last week, I grabbed my calculator, basic public math, so I'm pretty sure I can get this right. You, you, you and I, we get two, two hours credit for being here. But there's 168 hours in a week, 24 times seven. You can follow along with my math, but I'm pretty sure it's right because I double-checked it. <laughs> Plus, it's a calculator. So if we get two hours for being here, that means we got 166 hours left in this week to give an account to God of. You work a 50-hour work week. You're down to 116. Minus eight hours a day times seven, because you get eight hours a day every day of the week. That's only in my dreams. But let's say you get eight hours of sleep every day. You're left with 60 hours of free time every week, team. 60. When I was running those numbers, I grabbed my calculator. I felt like that was the Lord doing. I'm go I figured I was going to end up with 20, 25. 60. So what, what do I do with those hours indicates to me personally, and I can only do this for myself, who I serve. 
Who do you serve? See, John ends this letter here with the most, I believe, the most piercing, provocative thought for any who are ready to make a difference in a big way. Look at verse 21. Little children, that's us. He's like 95. Little children, keep yourselves, at least according to church history, little children, keep yourselves from idols. (laughs) Why would Jesus say that? I know. Because idols are time suckers. And we all have them. If we're going to be honest, we all have them. Well, I have to work a few extra hours and I got to drive. I got to spend an hour driving. Yeah, but that could be for the kingdom while you're driving. Praying for those lost people in your life. I got to eat. Early church fasted every once in a while and prayed. Got to go to the grocery store. Okay, listen, I'll take, I'll give you an extra 30 hours to blow every week, whatever you want to do. Eating, extra hours of working. That still leaves you and I with 30 hours. Can you imagine if each one of us said, okay, I'm done. No more idols. Here's 30 hours a week. What do you want to do, pastor? First of all, we're all going to start praying 30 hours a week. We turn the woodlands upside down. Do you realize this place is, and it has epidemic all over it, but it's all hidden behind the trees? People kill themselves all the time here. You ever read about it in the paper? Nope. Massive drug problems. When we first moved here, they called it the weed lands. It's not that anymore. It's heroin or opioids. Why would Jesus leave his readers with this? I know why. Because idols demand love and money and they suck real godly joy and peace out of our lives. You think about Peter and Paul. They sign off their letters. Hey, grace and peace be with you. You know, grace be multiplied in your life. You know, God bless you guys. And the last thing John writes as he's under the influence of the Holy Ghost here, is keep yourself from idols. You know, if you look back at the beginning of this letter in chapter one, I think we get a little insight as to why Jesus might write these interesting remarks at the close of this letter. You know, in, in John's opening lines, he, he writes why he has the qualifications in writing this letter because he's seen Jesus. And he, and he writes his great hope that we'd have fellowship with this one that he has a f- relationship with in. And then he says in verse four in chapter one, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. See, idols offer counterfeit joy. One of John's main reasons in writing this letter to the Christians was that he, that that his desire was that each one of us in our lives would be marked with joy overflowing out of our lives. Pleroo, to overflow, to fill to the full. One drop, ding, and it overflows. Lives overflowing with joy in spite of the world's difficulties that were being thrown at him. That's where this, this book, this letter started Little children, allow joy to be flowing out of your lives as you experience Jesus and your relationship with him every day. But the killer, robber, destroyer, this is my new word, life sucker outer of that joy that we have in Jesus is in this last verse of his letter. And it will suck it right out. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Idols destroy our relationship with God. And idols do that faster than anything else on the planet. And and let me just say this. I really doubt if, if you do, we'll come and cast the demons out of you or something. I really doubt if anybody here has a little shrine made up and, you know, they put the food in there and, you know, they bow down to it and they got a little candle in there. Anybody got that? The wise guy sitting next to Miss Jennifer up there, we won't say who it is, raised his hand. <laughs> it's out in the garage, right? Right, Miss Jen, that's where he's going. <laughs> 
So I really doubt if any, look, idols no longer come like that to modern America. They don't. Today, today idols come in any shape, form, or fashion. Man, I stood in that line eight hours to get that iPhone, but I only prayed five minutes this week. I'm serious. We, it's time to, it, church, it's game on. Because 2 Timothy 3 says in the last days, men are going to be lovers of... I got to get that phone. And lovers of money. Two things God has given you to invest into his kingdom. And these idols come in anything. And God has given you and I 60 hours a week to not only keep ourselves from idols, but to invest those hours into his kingdom. It's his kingdom. It's not Calvary Chapel. I didn't know this, but um, five and a half months before we moved out here, I, we were praying. And the, and the one thing I felt like God wanted me, us to pray for was that God would open effective doors for us to preach the gospel. And I've been praying that ever since I've been here. So when God opens the door, I don't pray, I just go. When I'm invited, but I, I, I come in the way God wants me to come in. Oh, oh can you just like do a 45 minutes of worship and just like a two-minute Bible study? Sorry, can't do that, ma'am. I come the way God's called me. I'm not going to compromise that. And so this last week, I, I, I shared with you, I met that guy on the plane, and he says, hey, I live in the woodlands, and, and we have this Bible study. Will you come teach? I did. It was epic. 12 Filipino women. But they don't have just one Bible study. They have multiple Bible studies in the woman, and, and, or, um, women. In the woodlands. The ones at night are guys, are families. Hey, will you come and teach at mine? Will you come and teach at mine? I said, yeah. Mark me down. Well, will you come? Yeah, I'll, as many times as you want. So someone has already said, hey, can I come with you? No. You need to go get your own open doors. Well, Where? Last night, and I'm not saying this to boast about myself, but I'm saying this because I, I, I feel guilty with my 60 hours in light of who Jesus is in my life. And so I looked on the why, and it's like, well, I don't want to volunteer for the why in the woodlands unless there's a great need because I want to invest into the lives of young people. So I sent, I sent off a volunteer request. Because if it's not for his kingdom, what is it? I almost died in 86. You guys know the stories. I want to finish well. No one will ever be able to say when they arrive in heaven, you know, Jesus, I just didn't have the time to serve and preach the gospel and, and invite those people that you've placed around me to come. And like I said earlier, I'm telling you, when I was running the numbers, I thought I was going to end up with like 20, 25. I don't know. I don't know what, I, I was so, sh I, I went back, I said, oh, I must have did something wrong. So then I typed it all out. Just, I did like my math formula. It's 60. We got to go buy groceries. I, I know, but we could preach the gospel there. You could pray for people, interact with people. Hey, do you go to church anywhere? No, here, love for you to come. There's a couple hundred thousand people or more that are unchurched here in our community, in the in the in Montgomery County. If you want to get real crazy, take the 60 hours each week, multiply it times 52, you end up with 3,120 hours. Subtract 1,000, 2,000 for extra work and going to the grocery store, buying clothes, whatever, you're still ended up with a lot of hours. Well, pastor, but I have to work more than that. Well, that's okay. Subtract a few. Someone came up to me earlier, one of the young people. Well, my dad has to drive downtown. Well, that's okay. Subtract a couple. But he works more than 50. Okay, we'll subtract a few. 
See, there's a difference between I have to work more and I want to work more. Look, if I want to work more, that's okay. Just name it what it is. It's an idol. I mean, how much is enough anyway? And this is what, to, to lay out what's going on in my life. My mom and dad live on 23 acres, have a 3,500 square foot house. My dad has dementia. He went into a home. He was, driving, he was making my mom sick. And so my mom, because my, my dad's a believer when he's in that realm. My mom thinks she's a believer, but she's not. And my mom, because of her love for her husband, moved into an 800 square foot apartment across from the complex so she could be close to her husband. 60 plus years of marriage of stuff. What did she do with it? Walked from it. And I think maybe that even challenges me more. If she can do that and give all that up because of the love of her husband, can't you and I do the same for the love of a man that died for us? It's pretty crazy when you think about it. My, my sister-in-law is an antique dealer. and No doubt my mom would go with her all the time. There's all, all that stuff's in the house up there. My dad had 38 tractors. Old tractors, worked on them, restored them. They're just going to do an auction, sell it all right as is. They're walking from all of it. And we want to still get more. <laughs> it's convicting. How much is enough? I know we know this, but let me remind us all here in the first person to make it personal. This is, and this is me. Everything in this life is passing away, and this is what I got. My house, my furnishings, my guns, my car, my money, my hobbies, my teams, my swimming pool I want to build someday, Lord willing, my trees, my plants, my clothes, all of it will fade away. Wasn't well, that a little selfish, a swimming pool? Mm, not for what we're going to use it for, it's not. You see, the only thing that will last for all of eternity is everything I do with what Jesus has given me that I do for him. Living for anything other than Jesus, anything I devote my time and attention to more than Jesus, anything that is not sinful, that I practically love and serve more than Jesus, it's an idol. And that could be and not limited to my electronics, myself, my flesh, my food, my status, my vices, my house, my toys, my body. People worship it. No, they don't, pastor. Okay, if I spend 10 hours in the gym and I spend one hour with Jesus each week, who am I worshiping? Just saying. My house, my toys, my body, my hobbies, my team, my teams, my TV, my money, my family, my career, my image. None of that stuff is encouraging me in my relationship with Jesus Christ if I am not using that stuff to advance his kingdom. But rather, it's just the opposite. It is discouraging me. And it's got a grip on me. Because that's what idols do. They grab us and they make us serve them rather than God grabbing us and we serve him. Our God, who John writes, is a jealous God. He is. All over the Old Testament. Oprah says, well, how can he be a jealous God? Sorry, Oprah. He, he is. And you want him to be. He's a jealous God because that way if someone messes with his kids, he's going to go deal with them. All over the Old Testament, he's a jealous God. What about the New Testament? Go read Revelation chapter 6 all the way to chapter 20 and you'll see how jealous our God is. See, it's not God first, worldly influence idol number two, second, worldly influence idol number three, third, worldly influence idol number four, fourth. Yeah, it, you, you, you see what it says. It says, no idols, period. Amen. That doesn't mean, oh, in Jesus' name, amen. That doesn't mean, oh, you get to start closing your Bible because the Bible study's over. No, amen means so be it. Make it happen. Bring it on. That's what amen means. Hey, read the book of Acts and look for what the early church lived for, team. That's, Calvary Chapel is distinctive. That's one of them, that we seek to model our lives after the early church that's found in the book of Acts. 
And then go read church history. True believers lived like they did in the book of Acts. They died for their faith. I mean, when, when, in William Tyndale, as he's seeking to bring the Bible from Latin into English, those people were, were, were burned at the stake. But in these last days, today it's almost cult-like if you suggest to live life like the early church did. But you know what? I'm suggesting it, team. I've got to find my identity and purpose in my relationship with Jesus Christ. Anything less than that becomes an idol in my life. Anything that begins to preoccupy my mind or my heart and seeks to displace God from being the central figure of my life is an idol. Whatever it screams for and gets your attention, watch out. If it's not your relationship with Jesus Christ, then quite possibly it could be or could become an idol in your life as you survey those 60 hours each week. And I understand this might be a hard thought for many to grasp. That's why I gave you the opportunity to walk out. But people, we are living in the last days. We're living in a day and age when the church is going to be in love with itself and in love with the money that Jesus has given them. You know, Jesus did not say, but seek first the kingdom of God and then go and seek and serve your idols. That's not what he said. It's seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then watch what God will do on your behalf as you walk with him. I want to end with a passage out of Matthew chapter 10. Let's turn there. I'm going to give hardly like 10 seconds of commentary here. But if, if we can grab this, this will keep us sharp and this will keep us away from serving idols. It's all the words of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 10. Starting in verse 16, Jesus speaking here, Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That is an accurate description of our world today. Therefore, be wise as serpents and innocent or harmless as, as doves. We're not to fight. Our weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God from pulling down spiritual strongholds. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils, government councils, and scourge you in their religious synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And in that place of opposition, God always provides godly opportunities. Now, brother will deliver a brother to death. What? Yeah, that's what it says. And a father, his child, and the children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my namesake. See, we see that in the Muslim and other religions where if you turn to Jesus, they just go kill him. But Jesus says, this is how it is for us. And it is this way. It just hasn't come to America yet. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Not me, pastor. Everybody loves me. Well, why don't you preach the gospel to them? <laughs> or, or at least be honest. Lord, my friends are my idols. I just want them to be my friends. They like me. Uh, you got a problem there. And you'll be hated by all for my namesake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Skip down to verse 24. Again, go back and read all this. A disciple is not above his teacher. You know what that means? That means Jesus went through this, so we don't have to do that. We get to live in a higher plane. No, a disciple is not above his teacher. They're below. Nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher. That's all we're asking. That's all Jesus is asking me. That's all I'm asking you. Just be like the teacher. You don't have to be above him. Just be like him. It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher. And yet the reality is, shouldn't a disciple be more than his teacher? Yeah. But Jesus says, no, no, no. It's, it's not enough. For it is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master, if they've called the master, Jesus, of the house Beelzebub, the son of the devil, how much more will they call those of his household? They don't call me names. Je Jesus says they're gonna. 
Therefore, do not fear them as you live for Christ, seeking to make an influence, to make a difference in these last days. For there's nothing covered that will not be re- for there is nothing covered that covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Kill the soul. But rather fear him, that's God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace, this is crazy, on the sword. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father. What? Yeah, that's what it says. A daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me because that's an idol. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's an idol. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. I'm not even going to comment on that. He who finds his life will lose it and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the words of the true God and eternal life, Jesus Christ. Living this way will keep you away from serving idols. You and I, we must keep our love for Jesus Christ, the most fervent, fired up, central relationship of all as we await his return. You think of some of the songs we sing this morning. Lord, I can't remember, but I remember this one. Lord, empty me and Lord, fill me. And as we keep the love for Jesus Christ right where that needs to be, you and I will finish this race with joy. We're going to make a difference in and for his kingdom and not our own. In Jesus' name. And Father, this morning as we sit at the foot of the cross,